All right, let's go ahead and start. Well, why don't we pray and we'll dive in. We're back in our Doctrine of Man and Sin course. And if you remember, we're going to be tackling the Doctrine of Man first. We're in session five. This will be the third and final session on man as male and female. And uh, we'll dive in, but let me pray first. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time this morning. First of all, just in general, that we get to gather with this local congregation of the people of Jesus Christ, and we thank you that we can be a part of that, to know Christ, to enjoy the blessings of salvation, and ongoing fellowship with him and his church. We thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit who unites us to Christ, who fills us with the knowledge of Christ, and pours out your love within our hearts and elicits from us love for Christ in return. Lord, we know that knowing Christ is what is of surpassing value. And we pray that even today we would enjoy a rich communion with him and grow in our knowledge of him through the word and through all the means of grace, including not only our corporate worship, but our fellowship in between and after the services. We pray that uh, our time this morning, that you would use it to equip us from your scriptures for every good work, that you would teach us to observe everything Christ has commanded, that you would help us to live our lives in accordance with the word, in thought and in deed. And Father, we pray that the Spirit would be renewing our minds and transforming our characters and our lives as a result of diving into your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. I want to start with, you can see here, this class is going to be, it's called, I'm calling it Answering Objections. And I want to start with this slide that I've actually already put up there. This just kind of captures the fact that there is a debate within uh, evangelicalism. So in other words, what I want to do is zero in not on the debate between the world and the church over gender roles, but something that is perhaps more contentious because it takes place within the church, within evangelical Christianity. In other words, Christians, true Christians who know Christ and believe the gospel have a debate still over the issue of gender roles. And uh, the position that I've been articulating the last couple weeks um, regarding gender roles within the church is that is what might be called complementarianism in other words god created men and women as equals but with different gender defined roles and that those roles are complementary to one another on the other side you have a group of christians evangelical christians who would be called egalitarians uh, when they and they would represent a view called egalitarianism And this is just a summary of it. While men and women are not identical, so in other words, they recognize as Christians the distinctions between male and female, yet they would argue that one's gender does not determine one's status or role in life, nor does it limit ministry opportunities. Now, there's some in which we would say, okay, yeah, of course, like, uh, your gender doesn't complementary complementarianism agrees that your gender does not determine your status in life you know and that's not doesn't make a person inferior or or superior but in terms of the roles 
in life and ministry, they would say gender doesn't determine that you have a distinct role in life and ministry. And that's so egalitarianism, the emphasis upon equality, complementarianism, the emphasis upon distinctions, a certain degree of equality in terms of your certain inherent qualities and your standing before God, but distinctions in roles and relations. So I wanted to highlight that and remind you of that because what I want to do today is I want to talk about some of the objections that the egalitarian camp within the church has has made against the position I've been articulating, what we might call complementarianism. Okay, um, And so I think this is important because what has happened is if we were to just boil it down to numbers, right? Uh, a pure numbers game. And we had a very broad brush when it came to evangelicals, you know, including everything from the sort of more prosperity gospel-ish. Uh, and now I would believe that that theology is um, heterodox, but if you paint it with a broad brush, right? The complementarian position that I'm articulating would be a minority position. And so this has been a very hot controversy uh, in which there have been many, many who disagree and have, and, and you say, well, how could they disagree, right? Given the scriptures that we've seen, you may be thinking that. Well, what I want to show you this morning is how they've disagreed. At least some of the objections that they have raised to the complementarian position so that you can understand what they are, and then let's provide some answers together, because I think it's important that we know why we believe, right? And if you talk with a savvy person, a Christian who's coming from an egalitarian position, they may raise objections that if you've never heard, you may be ill-equipped to, to think through or respond to, at least right away. And so I want to at least equip you in, to some degree in this regard. Because it is something that, you know, we face tremendous pressure from outside the church. You know, our views on these things are so out of step with the culture that it just seems outlandish. I mean, there are many people who would be, I cannot believe that there are any Christians who still believe that, right? So you have all that pressure. But then you also have a majority of people within evangelicalism who will put additional pressure on saying, that view is a wrong interpretation of Scripture, and you may be well-intentioned, but you end up oppressing and suppressing women within the church. And so it's important. Uh, this is going to be a live debate for a long time, and it's important that we think through it so that we can hold fast to this position, which I believe is a biblical position called complementarianism, because it is important for the health of the church, for our spiritual health as Christians. Okay, it may not be fundamental to the gospel. You could be a Christian and not hold to these things, but that doesn't mean it's not incredibly important for the life of the church and the health, spiritual health of the church. Okay, so that's our goal, is to work through some of these objections and, uh, and so that at least you'll be equipped to know that, okay, we've talked about some of these things, even if you don't remember everything that was said today. And I'll also point you at the end to some resources, some of which we have on our book cart that you could 
use, let's just say you get into a conversation with someone, you know, a family member, a Christian family member, and you get into this debate, and they start saying things you're like, man, I wish I could remember what we talked about in that class. Well, if I point you to some resources, at least you could say, you know, I need to go revisit this, and here's a book that um, I can read. And So let's, let's dive in. Uh, one, a first objection could be articulated this way. It's only the result of the fall. Genesis 3:16 and following will be the text we'll look at that the woman becomes subordinate to the man. There is not even a hint in the narrative of Genesis that that woman is in any way subordinate to man prior to the fall. So in other words, the evident subordination of women to men that you see for instance even reflected in the narratives of the Old Testament and just in civilizations more broadly, is part of the curse, right? It's, it's, a, it's a result of the fall, and it didn't exist before the fall, and through redemption, and when God makes all things new, it will be erased, right? So you see the, the objection there? Okay, so let's, let's consider a response. First off, I've already pointed to this before, and we're going to deal with it more in the next slide, but there are many indications of male headship in the account of the creation of men and women in Genesis 2, right? So we'll, we'll consider those in a second, but, and, and I have already pointed to many of them in a previous lesson, that there are indications in the text, actually, um, in Genesis 2, that there are distinctions and that those distinctions will lead to different roles. And you may be thinking of some in your head already as you think back to Genesis 2 and how God created the man and the woman. But, even when it comes to the fall, so actually, if you turn to Genesis 3 and you look at verse 16, you can see why some in the egalitarian camp would look to this verse and say, ah, see, the subordination of women is to, to male authority or male headship is just a result of the fall. Because uh, someone, someone read that verse. What does it say? Genesis 3.16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Ah, see, there it is. Right there in the text, right? He shall rule over you. And that's part of the curse that God put upon humanity, put upon the man, or to man and the woman in this case. So. They have redone that verse in the new version. Ah. Uh, it says, uh, I would surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary right. to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Yeah, and there is no doubt that the the Hebrew there is somewhat ambiguous. It could literally be translated toward. And so the question is, what is he getting at? So some translations are more free in interpreting it, and they'll put something like contrary to. But if you zoom out, you see they're saying, oh, well, this is the sort of first mention in the Bible of any subordination of a woman to man, he shall rule over you, right? And so this is where they say, 
see this whole reality of male headship and wives uh, being called to submit to their husbands, etc., is just a result of the fall, but it wasn't God's original design. Now, what I would want to argue is that actually you can see within the fall itself the reality that of the headship of Adam even before that that existed before the fall and while this is hinted at in the text so for instance in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9 so if you read if you read the story of the fall who is it that is the primary actor Adam or Eve when it comes to the the fall narrative you know Satan it's Eve right the serpent comes to Eve tempts her she sees the tree is good she takes and then she gives to her husband and he eats too so there is a mention of the husband but the primary actor is Eve however when you get to verse 9 and you know picture you've done something wrong dad comes home and he's going to come talk to the children right (laughs) well so when dad comes home so to speak when god comes down to deal with what has happened who does he go to talk to he goes to talk to adam so verse 9 the lord god called to the man and said to him where are you so he addresses adam first and when the bible from here on out speaks about the responsibility for the fall of humanity who is it that is responsible right so uh, let's look at this real quick but first corinthians chapter 15 i think is perhaps the clearest 15, 21, and 22. If someone would read those. 1 Corinthians 15, 21, and 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay, so it says that death came through a man. And you said, well, maybe this is one of those sort of general references, you know, a human being. But it's clarified in the next verse, right? In Adam, all die. So the text is very clear that that Adam was responsible for the fall, that it was his sin that actually led to the fall of humanity. And so it indicates right there in the, the narrative of Genesis, as well as in the subsequent unpacking of it, that Adam had been given a role prior to the fall of representative headship, you might say. That what he did counted for the rest of humanity. And by the way, there's a parallel, right? Uh, That another man, a second Adam, came along. And what he did counted for those he represented, which is the church, right? So even within the fall narrative and its subsequent unpacking, there's indication that leading up to the fall, well, Eve was certainly involved in the fall of humanity. It was Adam who was responsible and points to uh, a previous, a prior role of headship. 
um, over in in the the fam the, the first family Adam and Eve and, and as a married couple, and I would say that there's also a sense in which you see that this is precisely one of the things that should strike us about the fall narrative is that the serpent goes to Eve, not Adam, and that Adam, that the woman takes the fruit and gives it to the man and he eats. In other words, when you look at the chapter 2 and you see God created the man and he brought all the animals to him to name and then he made a helper suitable for him and created the helper out of his rib and all of that, you would expect that the man would somehow be leading the way when you come to chapter 2. But what happens is that the woman is leading the way, Eve, and then she gives to Adam and he just takes and eats. And you say, where's Adam been in all this? You know, (laughs) He was given the responsibility of working and keeping or guarding the garden. And yet, the serpent is running loose and leading his wife astray. So, the point being that there's something of a of a gender role switch that is involved with the fall and that the very the text sort of implies that this is out of order, right? <laughs> that it shouldn't be this way. That it should have been that Adam uh, was guarding the garden from the intrusion of the serpent and would have been protecting his wife from the deception of the serpent and would have resisted the his wife offering him the fruit, etc., so that he would have that it wouldn't have gone this way. So this objection, I would argue, is not a very um, is a superficial treatment of the text in that it just looks at the words of Genesis three sixteen, his desire he shall rule over you. So you see, that's it. That's there was no male headship before the fall because it's not explicitly mentioned. Well, you're not really doing a very you're not really treating the text in a very responsible way when you when you do that, I would argue. Okay? So any questions about that first objection or comments? Okay. Yeah, Mary no. When you sort of refer to it there in uh, Genesis 2, when he talks about uh, man, created Adam, right. and he's giving him the instructions as far as what he can eat mm-hmm. in the, the garden and what he can't. Right. Uh, well, and in fact... And it's, so it's given to Adam. Right. And then when he realizes that there's no helpmate for Adam, right. and creates uh, Eve from his rib... She's, and it says that she is taken out of man. Mm-hmm. So I've always looked at it as being um, part of man, but right. part of the generic man. Right, right. But, but a woman is under her husband. Right. And then it, he does, it doesn't show where Adam would have explained those rules right. to Eve. Right. He may have just sort of casually mentioned them and it's not written down and yeah. so she right. gets them all well I think I think that you make a good point the command of all the trees of the garden you may eat but 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and even you shall not eat in the day that you eat it, surely you shall die, happens prior to the creation of the woman, which indicates that Adam was given that charge and intended to teach his wife the commands of God. Something is weird when this when Satan attacks that command to the wife, and Adam appears to be there because she turns and gives him the fruit, but he does nothing. Uh, so it's an interesting point. Yeah. Along the same lines of that, it's our responsibility to share the gospel, to spread the good news so others will be aware of it. So we have been given the do not eat. You know, we've been given the news. And right. as we idly stand by why others aren't taken right. subject by Satan's tactics, because we right. didn't do our part. So it starts right in the very, very beginning in Genesis of the creation of man, our responsibility to be witnesses for Christ. Right. So does it does it seem like it could have been kind of on Adam, or is it all just kind of rolled in one, because Adam was obviously passive and not holding up his role that God gave him? I mean, like, you yes. can kind of semantics be like, well, he actually sinned by not protecting right. her before she got as far as being tempted by Satan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think specifically seeing the scripture. Right. I mean, sin, the first sin in terms of the act of eating was committed by Eve. However, Adam is held responsible for the fall. And so, you know, speculation arises in your mind. You know, what if Adam had said no to when she handed him the fruit? Would there still been a fall? Or is what the scripture is saying that he was responsible for her act, right? And the fact that he didn't. So, and I think either would be true in a sense. Like, let's just say you have a family, husband, wife, uh, children, all Christians. Uh, Family is not going to church, right? They just not going to church. They stop going to church. Turns out the reason is because wife doesn't want to go to church, uh, for a variety of different reasons. Who is responsible? Like, wife is sinning, but where's husband? He, he should be saying, no, we're going to go to church, you know? <laughs> so there's a responsibility for the act, even though it might be on her part that she's the instigator. I think something akin to that seems to be going on here. He is responsible for what's going on as a whole. And that indicates his role as head even before the fall, in the leading up to the fall. Now, just for time's sake, let's look at this second objection. This really dovetails on the first one, but this is a egalitarian writer, says, any teaching that inserts an authority structure between Adam and Eve in God's creation design, Genesis 1 and 2, is to be firmly rejected since it is not founded on the biblical text. In other words, there's nothing in Genesis 1 and 2 that indicates an authority structure between Adam and Eve. How do we deal with this? Well, it isn't true. Um, And one of the ways you know is because Paul himself grounds, at certain points in the New Testament, grounds his instructions regarding male headship and the submission of, for instance, a wife to her husband, Paul grounds that in 
elements of Genesis 2, right? So we've already looked at this, but let's just look again quickly. 1 Timothy 2, 12-13. So in this text, Paul is speaking to the distinct roles of men and women and the structure of headship. Male headship is to be worked out in the ministry of the church as they gather for corporate worship. And he says, so 2, 12, and 13. So 12 is the famous or to some infamous verse. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And he's speaking here to the context of the corporate gatherings. In fact, if you go up to the first verse, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, etc., etc. So, as the church comes together, for instance, for corporate worship, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or hold authority over man. Uh, in the previous verse, he said, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then he, then he grounds that in a, a structure that's established from creation, because he quotes from Genesis 2, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. So you see the for, the reason. Here's the reason for this. And he roots it in Genesis 2, right? But this person said, anyone who inserts an authority structure to an Adam and Eve in creation design, Genesis 1 and 2, is firmly rejected. It's not found in the biblical text. Well, Paul seemed to think it was, right? 1 Corinthians 11 is another one. Now, in the larger teaching, this is about head coverings, right? And the head coverings had to do with a woman having a sign of authority on her head. And that sign of authority was tied in with the distinct distinctions between men and women with respect to their an authority structure that God had established. So if you look at verse 7, For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. So where is that coming from? Genesis 2. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Again, Genesis 2, right? Man or woman is created from a rib from the man. So he's citing two things from Genesis 2. And then he says... That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, right? So, male headship, authority, a woman respecting that authority by having a symbol of authority on her head. Now, and then he says, because of the angels. So, I'm not denying that. There's all kinds of things we have to, interpretive difficulties we have to work through in this text. I'm not trying to get into all that. But... The point is, is that when Paul looks at the issue of authority, male headship in the church and in the family, the issue of male authority is something he roots not in the fall, right? But it roots in Genesis 2. It doesn't really fit with this. And in fact, I would argue that among egalitarians, this is not across the board, but in, in many in many cases, you can sense a tension with the Apostle Paul. There's just a, a struggle with Paul because of texts like this, right? And, and I would argue, I feel the same tension when you read through passages like that, right? Because, but, I, but I know why. 
It's not because there's anything wrong with Paul. It's because I am a modern man. <laughs> and these things grate against the modern worldview. And I would just say, this is where we just have to recognize that and say, you know, the problem is with me and not with the text. And I need to strive within my soul to bring my soul into line with the text so that I can not only accept, but I can embrace as good God's design. And I, and I don't think of, for instance, men having being in authority in the home and in the church over a wife as being somehow oppressive and uh, degrading to women because God doesn't look at it that way. There's equality before Him, but He's created them different for different roles and He's in, and created a, an, an authority structure. And it's designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and His church. And so it's about the glory of God. So it's, it's a challenge, but I think you know, this objection would really require saying that Paul was wrong in the way he was interpreting Genesis 2. And I think at best what happens, if there's not an overt resistance to Paul, you know, saying, well, he was a man of his times and he was just reflecting the sort of patriarchal, oppressive patriarchal view of his day. If they don't say that, they, they at least have to say, well, he, he's not saying what he seems to be think, saying, you know. <laughs> Or he, he just simply is misapplying Genesis 2. I think that's how I would answer that objection. Any, any questions on this? I'm already realizing that I'm stuck in molasses here and I'm not going to get through my objections. That's okay if we don't get through all of them. Wouldn't this then change the conversation to, if you disagree with Paul, you disagree with the Word of God? And we have, we're kind of in a different situation yeah. right. now. And I, and I would say that in some cases, people who hold to the egalitarian position, while I would say they may still be true Christians, they have compromised on the issue of inerrancy. It's not that they've rejected the whole Bible, but they've said, well, in certain places, the Bible's wrong. It's right on the gospel. It's right on you know these theological things that I like and accept. But the places where I have tension, it's wrong, right? And so you're right. You come to a place where some have gone that route. Others have not. If you're not going to go that route, you have to somehow reinterpret what Paul is saying so that, you know, and I, and I always come back to this in my mind, so that when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach and hold authority over a man, you have to say, well, if we interpret it properly, what he really means is I do permit a woman to teach and hold authority over a man. <laughs> Uh, and that's, I just think this is where the problem lies, is you really have to go through exegetical gymnastics to get there, you know. Not okay. a slippery slope. Yes, yeah, I agree. Katrin. Um, speaking on a personal level, um, when my husband and I first got, my late husband and I first got together, I was very much um, the leader of the home. Mm. And he did not take his physical role. And as right. time went by, he didn't get there because he decided to get there. God was working on him, but right. he worked on me more. Right. It was as he created in me this the willing spirit to right. release the authority to my husband and allowed him then to step up. And at once and at, at first I fought it like oh you know right. and as I learned more about the word it was it's so smooth the way that right. it just rolls right into that. Right. Um, 
the way that God has designed it. You know, a right. two-headed monster is just that, a monster. Yeah, and, and we can see within us as a man, I can see that my flesh is prone to two faults in this. One would be a, an unloving, domineering spirit toward my wife on the one hand, or on the other hand, a passive, well, let's just let her take the lead in this, right? And with in women, I'm, I'm not a woman, so I don't know, but I'm guessing that you could also see two proclivities there. You could have a proclivity to seek to manipulate and control and take the lead from your husband, or you could have a, a tendency to just sort of to be so passive on the other hand that you're not actually being a good helpmate and not giving counsel, not, for instance, challenging your husband when he is disobeying God, etc., etc. So we all, we see that our flesh kicks against this. And, and that is the result of the curse. It's not the gender role itself. It's the distortion of it, right? Okay, let's uh, go to objection three. Here's the objection. The fact that both Jesus and the apostles were all male, not female, was simply a cultural accommodation, not a necessary reflection of God's design for male headship. So you think of who were the leaders. You know, Christ is the head of the church. The apostles were appointed as... So when, God, when Jesus chose the 12 apostles who would be the leaders of the early church, he chose all men. And, and you know, these two things have been pointed to by complementarianism as at least a supporting evidence of God's design for male leadership in the church, right? And so an objection to that is, no, it wasn't reflective of God's design. It was just God was accommodating to the culture because it was a patriarchal culture. But it wasn't necessary. There could have been women apostles. Jesus could have taken on a female humanity. So how do we respond to this? Well, it is clear that God designated the first man, Adam, not the first woman, to be the representative head of humanity. Like we looked at it, by a man came death. So Jesus also had to be a man, not a woman, to be a representative of a new humanity. 1 Corinthians 15.22, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you're going to have the sort of abstract question. Well, could he not also have chosen differently? Chosen to create the female gender as the representative head? Well, if you take it out of the realm of what he did and into the abstract and say, what could God have chosen to do? I suppose he could have, right? He could have designed the genders however he wanted. But in other words, it was not just random that Adam was chosen to be head uh, the representative head, nor was it random that Jesus was a male either. The first man, second man, first Adam, second Adam. It was required, it was necessary that Jesus take on a male humanity because he would be the second Adam. And God had chosen the man whom he created first to be the head, to be the representative head for all humanity. And I would argue then that this... And the fact that all the apostles were men, you know, we're not, the fact that all the apostles were men isn't something that is in a vacuum, right? If it was, you say, well, that's coincidental. 
I, you know, strange. No, no, no. It's, it's not in a vacuum. It's, it's part, it just simply reflects a broader teaching with all these texts that we've looked at, right? Of God's design for male headship uh, in both the church and in the family. Uh, and so when you look at the fact that all the apostles were men, you say, yeah, that makes sense because it fits in the broader teaching of Scripture about the, the authority structure that God has intended within, between genders uh, in the family and in the church. Um, so it's not... In other words, the idea that it's just a cultural accommodation, it's like it ignores all the texts we've been looking at, right? And just saying that he, the only reason he did it is to just fit in with the culture. Plus, it's a pretty big deal, Right? The identity of the apostles and of Jesus, that sets a tone going down through history. Is it really, how reasonable is it to suggest that God made that decision about, you know, Jesus's gender and the gender of the apostles, that he was just, con- the, the primary factor in that was the cultural norms of the day. I mean, it doesn't make sense at all that that would be the case. In fact, we would argue along these lines that Jesus actually was countercultural in his view of gender. If you were to go back and you were to look at the role of women in ancient Semitic culture, including in Israel, Jesus was not afraid to be countercultural with respect to these things, right? He, he gave a dignity and, and role and function to women that would not have been afforded to them in that society. Um, and in fact, things like husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, that was not the cultural norm of the day. And so many have argued that this is one of the reasons why there was a gender disproportion among the earliest Christians in the early church. There were much more women than there were men. And some have argued that one of the reasons for this was the dignity afforded to women in the church that would not have been afforded to them outside the church that they recognized something that was good and right about the way that women were treated in the church. I mean, for instance, just one thing is it was a cultural norm for a man to have his wife for procreation and managing of the household and things and have visit prostitutes and have mistresses on the side. It was a cultural norm that would not have been socially stigmatized in the Roman Empire, for instance. And so that's quite a bit different than the teaching of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, which it would have exploded that type of thing, right? Uh, an elder was to be a one-woman man. Whoa! You know, uh, that is not the cultural norm. And uh, so this is, uh, this is something to add into that. Jesus was not just one to, you know, bend to the cultural norms when it came to issues like gender. Okay, let's look at objection four. Submission is a Christian virtue, an egalitarian would say, right? But wives do not have a unique responsibility to submit to their husbands as their head. Rather, husbands and wives both have a responsibility to submit to one another by serving one another and deferring to each other's interests. Okay, so this is an interesting objection, right? Where do you think they would get the idea that really the issue is not Wives, submit to your husbands. 
but rather the issue is that we are to our Christian the Christian virtue is mutual submission to one another. Where would they they get that? Do you think? You know, there's a text somewhere, right? Okay, but that is true. However, there is a particular text, Ephesians chapter five. And obviously, Ephesians chapter 5 is one of the most um, live texts when it comes to male headship and wives being called to submit to their husbands. But look at the... So that starts in verse 22, right? Look at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I see that's the most... That's the real important thing here is we are to have a mutual submission to one another. Now, how do we respond to this? Okay, well, it is true, first of all, that husbands and wives are to serve each other and put each other's interests before their own. This is basic Christianity, Philippians 2, right? Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, right, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So, absolutely. In the sense of deferring to each other's interests, serving one another humbly, you know, male authority is not... Jesus said, the Gentiles lorded over one another. They used their authority to serve themselves. He said, not so among you. The greatest among you will be your servant. And so a husband... Is, yes, has authority over his wife and is to lead his wife, but how is he to use his authority? To lovingly serve his wife, not to lord it over his wife. And in that sense, you say, absolutely, we are to be people who defer to one another in terms of putting each other's interests first. And that is a hard thing, right? Our flesh just kicks against that, and in marriage, it leads to all kinds of dysfunction when we don't do that. But, on the other hand, we have to say that, oh, Let's add to this. It is also true that husbands are not exempt from the command to submit to authority, are they? No, they have authorities in their life that they are to submit to as well. Their elders, their governing authorities, Christ's authority. But here's the point. In the scripture, within marriage, for instance, wives are commanded to submit to their husbands but you never see a reciprocal command of a husband to submit to his wife. That just simply does not exist in the scripture. And you say, well, what about that verse though, right? <laughs> Submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. Doesn't that indicate that husbands and wives should, that every Christian should submit to each other and that that's the real issue here? No, I don't think so. Jeremy. Yes. First is that. Sorry, Ephesians five twenty one. Thank you. Sorry, I apologize. That's okay. There it is, right you there, said though. It and I just missed it. Yeah. I, so, what do we make of this verse? Is it giving a general command for every Christian to submit to each other? Every Christian submit to every other Christian. Is that what it is saying? Well, it may have something to do. With the next verse, that we are to, as we're filled with the Spirit, we are submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You say, okay, well, what does that look like? Tells you in the next verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. 
Then go down to um, Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Then go down to verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with sincere heart. Do you see, the point of submitting to one another is not that every Christian is required to submit to every other Christian. It's a, it's a general truism that then is fleshed out in the following verses. This is what we're talking about. That we are to submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives. Wives to their husbands, uh, children to their parents, bond servants to their masters. And you could add, if you were in uh, Romans 13, Christians to their civil authorities, citizens to their civil authorities. Okay, so that is the proper interpretation of that. And in fact, if you think about it, it just simply doesn't make sense that every Christian, every Christian is to submit to every other Christian. Are we really going to say, for instance, that Christian children, like Christian parents are to submit to their children, right? No, it, it doesn't make sense. And that's why, that's, that's why you see that it's explained. You have to see that it's explained starting in the very next verse. Okay, Katrin. Yeah. Text without a pretext is a poor text. Right. You have to take the text in its content. Right. Because um, if you just take that, that one verse, then okay, you can right. have arguments for, for everything. But, um, right. And there is, a, there is a tendency in this debate to, like in many debates, to sort of stack text against each other. Well, you've got your text over here, but I've got my text over here. Say, come on. This is foolishness. Of course we don't do that, right? We don't pit text in the scripture against each other. No, we say they must fit together, right? They're all true. So the question is, not how many texts do you have on your side and how many texts do I have on my side? You know, like, well, you have all these texts about God's sovereignty and His choice of some for salvation, but I've got all these texts over here about, you know, whosoever believes... We don't do that. We say that all these texts are compatible because they're all coming from God, and so we have to understand how they interpret one text with another text. So obviously, submitting to one another has to be understood as not somehow contradicting all the other texts, <laughs> including the very next verse. So, that's one thing that we would say. Also, when you do a, a lexical study of the term submission, and you look at, for instance, all the contexts in which it's used and all the different ways in which it's used in Greek literature, you never see the word submission used as having a mutual force. Wayne Grudem says it's always one directional in its reference to submission to an authority. In other words, submission by its very meaning implies means submission to an authority. If there is no authority, the word doesn't fit. So unless you're willing to say that every Christian has authority over every other Christian, the word cannot mean what people attempt to make it mean. Okay, any questions on this? I know we're running out of time here. Okay, objection five. When the Bible says that the husband is the head of the wife, Ephesians 5.23, 1 Corinthians 11.3, the word head does not mean one in authority, but origin or source. This is a very common argument. It simply refers to the fact that the husband is to be a source of life-giving love and service to his wife. Okay. So, first of all, we recognize 
The husband is called to be a source of love and service to his wife. Okay, no one disagrees with that, right? But it's simply not true that the Greek word, it's kafale in the Greek, but that's translated head. It's simply not true that it means origin or source without any sense of authority in its uses. And and certainly not in Ephesians 2.23 or 1 Corinthians 11.3 or any other Greek text. So this is Wayne Grudem. He says, wherever one person is said to be the head of another person or persons, the person who is called the head is always the one in authority, such as the general of an army, the Roman emperor, Christ, the heads of the tribes of Israel, David as the head of the nations, etc. Specifically, we cannot find any text in Greek literature where person A is called the head, kephale, of person or persons B and is not in a position of authority over that person or persons. So it is true there are a couple of references where the word kephale in Greek can potentially have the idea of source. But even in those contexts, it's not devoid of the idea of authority. And so, and Wayne Grudem did an extensive uh, word study of this, and he's presented it in different places. Um, so he's, this is the conclusion of his word study of the the word kephale. So it's it's simply, it's been a very common way of dealing with the word head, but it doesn't really fit. And, you know, when you go back to Ephesians 5, right? It's like, to make this argument, you also have to make the last argument. You have to erase the word submission, because look what Paul says in Ephesians uh, 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. So even if you make head mean not one in authority, but just a source, you still have to say, well, if you're going to do that, then what sense does it make to say that the wives submit to their own husbands? Submission, again, implying that there is an authority. And so you really have to go through some gymnastics here, dealing with each word in its turn and trying to sort of make them mean something that they really never mean in Greek literature, and then both of the arguments have to somehow fit together. When If you just step back and you look at it, it's just so plain, right? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord for, here's the reason, the husband is the head of the wife. He's in the position of authority. And again, that doesn't it's, it at all undermine, it doesn't mean domineering, because a husband is supposed to love his wife sacrificially. It doesn't mean that she's inferior. No, this is about reflecting the relations between Christ and his church. He's to treat her as his own body, nourishing and cherishing her. Okay, objection six. When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, 1 Timothy 2.12, the word translated exercise authority over actually means to usurp or misuse authority. So what Paul is really doing there is he's simply correcting certain women in the church in Ephesus who were abusing their authority in the church. He's not articulating a universal rule for all the churches. A number of responses to this. One, again, there's a lexical problem here. The idea that the Greek word translated exercise authority over can mean usurp or abuse authority, it's just simply not true. <laughs> when you look at the meaning of the word in their context, it's not true. That's why all the translations say the same thing exercise authority. They don't say usurp or abuse. 
Because that's not what the word means. Second, there's no indication that Paul's prohibition is restricted to just certain women in Ephesus. And that it's not more general. In fact, if you just look, if you go to 1 Timothy 2, you know, you say, well, isn't it a church, isn't it a letter written to the church at Ephesus? Yes, it is. But he is teaching general principles here. And you know that if you just go to the next chapter and you look at verses 14 and 15, he says, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God and a pillar and buttress of the truth. In other words, this is not just like some specific instance of you know women sort of abuse, you know, holding positions of authority, abusing it, and Paul saying, "Well, just in this case, you know, with with these women, here's no." He's saying this is how one ought to conduct oneself in the household of God, in the church, right? These are principles. By the way, we don't, we don't, no one doubts that his teaching about qualifications for elders, qualifications for deacons, instructions about prayer, about modesty, no one questions that those are general principles applicable. It's all right in the same context. So why would we take just this one thing and sort of relativize it away? Well, that's just for some particular issue going on. It just doesn't work. And by the way, the same principle that he articulates here, Paul articulates the same principle in other places, and he specifically says, this is for all the churches. So for instance, I just want you to see this with your own eyes. It's one of these texts that makes us squirm. But it's 1 Corinthians 4, 14, 33-35. He says this, And we're going to start in verse 33b, the beginning of that paragraph there. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. Again, that has to be qualified. It's not complete silence, right? For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I am not arguing that we don't need to unpack that and clarify what he means and what he doesn't mean. What I'm arguing is, do you see the same principle, though, from 1 Corinthians or 1 Timothy 2, right? I do not permit a woman to speak and hold authority. Except here he explicitly says, as in all the churches of the saints. So, if there's any question in 1 Timothy 2, there certainly is no question in 1 Corinthians 14 that this is for all the churches. We're out of time. So, we're going to skip these next ones. Oh, gosh, we can't skip this one, though. Let me run through this really quick. <laughs> Galatians 3.28. This is the most important text into the egalitarian um, argument. So, could someone read Galatians 3.28? There is neither Jew or, nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Right. So you take that text. It's pretty striking, right? And again, if you're, if you're saying, well, you have text on your side, and we have text on our side. If you're in the egalitarian camp, you're going to say, this is our most important text through which we will interpret every other text, right? And how do we interpret this text? 
This text proves that any role distinctions between men and women that may have resulted from the fall are now abolished in the church. And then every other text about the roles of men and women must be interpreted through the lens of our interpretation of this text. Now, what would you say is a response to this objection? That this sort of wipes out all gender distinction, role distinctions in the church. How would you respond, do you think? This would be more of Paul defining the equality unto salvation and that no status of Jew or Greek or male nor female makes us more viable for salvation that is freely of God and there's no longer anything that predisposes someone towards salvation. Right. I, so if you're going to explain this text, you have to say, well, what does Paul mean by there is no male or female in Christ? What does he mean by it? If you, you could just read into it the whole gender role debate, right? I say, well, that's what he's talking about. There's no difference between two roles. One problem you have with that is all these other texts, right? <laughs> but another problem you have with that is context. What has he been talking about in the book of Galatians? Justification. Right, justification, adoption, the, the reception of the Abrahamic promise. What's the very next verse, right? The very next verse. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The whole point of the book of Galatians is to talk about that we are justified by grace alone through simple faith, not circumcision, not works, right? Now, if you're talking about your standing before God in Christ, your reception of justification and adoption and the promised Holy Spirit, well then, yes, there is neither male nor female, right? We're all one in Christ. In that respect, we're talking about our true equality, that there's no distinction. But that, in, that is not even addressing the issue of you know, role relations within the church or within marriage, is it? No. And so, it's just simply interpreting Scripture with Scripture, interpreting Scripture in its context, like Katrin was pointing out. And so... We don't pit texts against each other in the Bible as if they were in tension with each other. We interpret Scripture with Scripture knowing that they are in perfect harmony with each other. Whatever Paul means in Galatians 3.28 can't contradict his clear teaching about male headship and, gender, and distinct gender roles in the family and the church. In Galatians 3.28, Paul is describing the equality of men and women with respect to the promised redemptive blessings which they received in Christ. There's, this in no way erases the distinct roles assigned to men and women in the family and the church as Paul established in other texts. All right. Finally, there are many other objections raised by egalitarians against complementarianism, which have also been fully addressed in both preaching and in writing. And I just want to point you to a few books. This is probably, some people just call this the big book, because it's uh, very long. It's, it's a collection of essays on various subjects. So if some of you are like, what about the head covering thing? Let's go back to that. I'd be like, no, we're past that. Sorry. But there is a whole chapter on that in here that you could, you could buy the book and read the chapter. This is a, a, a shorter version of this. But you know, some of, I've, I've taken some of the guys through this in our little discipleship thing. And it's very short, very manageable. I believe we have it on the shelf too. And it walks through the biblical text, summarizes the position, deals with objections. It's also very good. And this is a, a, a very recent book by Kevin DeYoung. If you haven't read anything by Kevin DeYoung, 
He's very good. He, he, there's a mountain of theological understanding under there. You know, he's got his PhD in systematics and he's a professor at RTS now. But he's very good at pithy, uh, lay-level explanation for people like us um, to read. And, and it's a, it's a, it is a very good uh, introduction to the subject. So if you want to explore this further or somewhere down the line, you're like, I forget everything Jeremy said, but I know, now I need to go back and think about it. Here's some text. You know, take a picture on your phone, and then you can pull it up. You'd be like, "Where's that? Where's that picture?" All right, let's pray together, and I'll let you go. Father, thank you for um, our time together. Lord, we know that there's always controversy, doctrinal controversy within the church, and sometimes we go overboard in being too um, rigid in our views and need to give people room to hold different views. We know that not every doctrinal controversy is a matter of salvation, but we know that there are doctrines that are not necessarily fundamental to salvation, but are so important that we must plant our flag and we must uh, state our position and understand why we believe what we believe and, and, and hold fast to it uh, in the church for our good and your glory. And we pray that you would give us biblically rooted, strong convictions on this matter, even as we've studied over the last, uh, today in the last couple sessions. And I know that I have not explained it perfectly, Lord, and I know that I probably miss things or perhaps even um, given the wrong impression uh, or, or misspoke in certain matters. Please cover over all of that in your grace and work in our hearts to help us understand better. But Lord, we pray that you would ground us in these things now and that we would embrace, understand and embrace the roles that you have given to us and be learning by the Spirit to fulfill them for your glory and our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.